This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, I'm Hanif Baharuddin and you're tuned into the show that explores the narratives of historical landmarks and places in the Klang Valley. This month, we're going to reflect on vacant buildings and monuments that are underutilized and what we can do for them. This episode was inspired by an incident that happened a couple of months ago when a video of an old building that caught fire went viral. Initially, people thought that it was the Panggung Banaraya when in fact it was actually the old sanitary board building. Here's our resident heritage conservation expert, Elizabeth Cardosa, breaking down the story. Yeah, I think um, that sometime last month it was, or was it the month before? But you know, a few weeks ago, there was a video that was, you know, went out viral actually um, and, and through some of the groups that I, I'm in that was Pangung Bandaraya is on fire. Pangung Bandaraya is of course the old town hall in, in KL. And so the arts community, a lot of people in the arts community got very upset because it's a space which is KL's, I, I suppose effectively, KL's oldest formal uh, theatre space, performance space and um, in a historic building and it was on fire you know it, it's caught fire before and uh, been gutted and then it was reconstructed and this would have been in the 1990s i think it was um, and it's been refurbished a few times but it's been vacant for a, a, a fair amount of time now two three years at least if not longer and it has been i believe refurbished since uh, you know it, it fell vacant but nevertheless, there was this thing about Pang Bandarai being on fire. What transpired was that actually it wasn't the theatre that was on fire, but next to it, it, it's sort of a set of three buildings. And most people don't realise this who, who are familiar with the buildings in KL. If you're familiar with Pang Bandarai because you are somehow involved in the arts community or go and see performances or have gone to see performances there, you're aware of the theatre. Then there is the uh, the old sanitary board building, which is Dewan Bandaraya, um, that has a big dome. And th- this faces uh, uh, Franz Jalan Raja. And that was the old uh, sanitary board. The old, you know, what DBKL was before we had DBKL, yeah? It was the old city hall building. And next to it, to its side, to the other side of it, uh, of the Dewan Bandaraya building, the old town hall, is um, the former the FMS, um, the survey office. And this uh, is a rather long building that, that uh, is, runs along the side on Jalantun Perak, um, parallel to the um, LRT track. So these three buildings kind of like sit in an L-shaped configuration, ish L-ish shape. You know, most people see them as an L-shaped configuration. And sort of think that they're one, but actually they're three. But that's not the story. Now, they have been vacant for a fair amount of time. And there's been a lot of talk and use uh, for its adaptive reuse or refurbishment over the years. I think more recently, maybe about two, three years ago again, um, there was some talk about DBKL wanting to refurbish the buildings um, to the tune of, you know, 120 million or something like that. You know, there was a, a sum of money that was put out that was um, floated, you know, in the public domain, in the news media, for example. 
And at another time, um, in and around the same time, uh, Motec, the Minister of Tourism, uh, were talking about relocating uh, Kraftangan, the Kraftangan complex from where it is now on Jalan Conley um, to this area because um, the MRT was supposed to take over the Jalan Conley site uh, where Kraftangan is. So there was all of this sort of, you know, that, you know, these buildings are there, they are vacant, why don't they get used, right? And, um, but just going back to the DBKL, the fire, the story of the fire. So first there was this whole thing about, oh gosh, you know, there, you know, how can this building be on fire? What a waste, you know, is it safe? You know, what, what's going to happen um, to it? And there was quite a flurry of, of activity and comments that came out. But when it was discovered that actually what had happened was the counter or the, the table and some chairs, some furniture, basically, which was used by the security guard at um, the DBKL building itself, not the town hall, but DBKL in, in the front of the DBKL building, that had caught fire and had been put out very quickly. But it had really only damaged, the fire was contained, it had only really damaged the furniture and scorched a, a window and a little bit of the wall, but it was not extensive. So then, you know, everybody kind of calmed down and, and then the thing seemed to just disappear, you know, meaning the news, it was no longer news, right? Because actually it wasn't a big disaster. Somehow the story inspired her to reflect and think about vacant buildings in town that are underutilized. But it set me thinking about, well, you know, there are all these buildings around in that area, which to a large extent are either not used, um, vacant that is, um, or underused, uh, partially used, probably in most cases not in a good enough condition to be used, you know, because really they need major refurbishment for them to become habitable. So it sort of like set me thinking, I was in a convention um, a couple of weeks ago that talking about the unleashed potential of um, heritage buildings and how can you find a way to get these buildings um, as part of building stock? How do you find a way to activate uh, these buildings? Should we be activating these buildings? And can we tap into that hidden potential um, rather than lose it? You know, what do you, what do, you do with them? Do you demolish them? Uh, which is one option, right? Um, and then rebuild. Or do you rehabilitate them and uh, refurbish them, renovate them, you know, and then turn them into something else or new use or even same use, meaning if it was a commercial property, but retaining the heritage character of the place. And we have many, many examples of um, both these options, yeah. The first option, which is the demolition option, I think that if you consider it from the point of view of just really costs, the cost of demolishing a building is not just the cost of you bringing in the wrecking ball and you know bringing down the building and then removing the rubble. But it is actually the, what you have lost 
is the original cost for building that building and all the energy and all the activities that went into, which is a very intangible part of the configuration, that went into the use of the building over the many years of its existence. And you've lost that. It's not something we quantify. But that is part of the intangible values of the building that we tend to ignore. Um, you know, there is the... It actually is, from a waste perspective, construction waste perspective, pretty damning, you know, from, a, you know, causing pollution, greenhouse gases, you know, all that kind of thing. That's, that's damning. Rebuilding, then you reconstruct. So you have the cost for reconstruction. look at dem demolishing an old building, we just take the cost of demolishing it, rebuilding the new structure. We never add the cost, for. then we come up with a figure X, okay? We never actually add the figure Y to it, and the figure Y is all the earlier costs that I talked about, the original cost of building, the original cost for the energy that went into the materials for the building, all that effort and all the history which, as I said, is not something that you can sort of put, it's so easy to put dollars and cents against it, or ringgit and cent against it, against the cost for renovating a building and refurbishing it. Because it's not cheap, you know, to, to renovate. I think most people who have old buildings will tell you, well, you know, it cost me a fair amount of money. Because what you're trying to do when you refurbish an old building is you want to bring it up to a certain standard and a quality of uh, use, uh, you need to redo the wiring, make sure it's compliant, you know, with, with modern standards. You want to fit it out for air conditioning, toilets, kitchen, you know, all the kinds of comforts that we are used to or that we tend to expect in this day and age. So there are a lot of costs uh, there. And I suppose when you start to add that up, it does add up to... A substantial amount. However, what you've done is you have actually, because you have saved the cost of the demolition costs and the removal of the rubble and the cost for rebuilding, you're actually investing um, what those savings are into retrofitting. <clears throat> a lot of uh, argument will then go, well, when we, if we are going to demolish and rebuild, we can build higher. We can build more floors. Um, because DBKL or, or other cities allow a certain um, uh, plot ratio. Um, so we are able to redevelop, you know, it's easier to do it that way. But what you've lost, though, and again, what is not quantifiable um, in terms of uh, ringgit and sen, is the, the loss of that, the, the heritage character and the identity and the memory that that place um, has. So going back to the Pangong Mandaraya uh, story, um, if the theatre had actually been burnt, um, if you demolished it and rebuilt a new theatre, it may cost you the same amount as refurbishing. 
you know, and strengthening because there may be structural damage from the fire, etc., etc. You know, it may not be, um, you might need to do a lot of work to make it safe, um, you know, physically safe, secure, structurally sound, right? But what you've lost is that heritage, that set of heritage values, um, which really trying to put it in an economic, um, you know, to count it, you know, in economic terms is not something that's very easy because how do you say memory, legacy? How do you quantify those really intangible elements? And I think that that is something that we should um, begin to think about more seriously and property owners and developers should really begin to think about because there is also this sense of responsibility. You know, who is responsible for, we are responsible. We, this, whoever is this generation, the present generation, no matter whether you are in, you know, your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, you know, 80s, you are responsible and should be responsible, take ownership of what there is around us and ensure that these stories and this, which is part of the legacy of ourselves, our communities, our memories, um, and our history are able to be continued on and not handed over, but for them to be present so that the future generation have this as a marker and enjoy it. That was our resident heritage conservation expert, Elizabeth Cardosa, reflecting on vacant buildings that are underutilized here in the city. We're going for a short break. Stay tuned. I'm Hanif Paharudin and you're listening to I Love KL on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to I Love KL, bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city. I'm Hanif Baharuddin and joining me this week is Elizabeth Cardosa, our resident heritage conservation expert. We've been talking about vacant buildings in town that are underutilized. Elizabeth is now going to share how we've dealt with old buildings via a process called adaptive reuse. So I think I kind of want to you know, go back to the story of before that, of um, what I suppose in, in KL would be considered the first adaptive reuse project which was initiated not just by government, you know, but because of civil society, because of an agitation, because of people having um, a certain vision. And that was the central market in KL. Um, in the early, early mid-1980s, it was slated for demolition. The, um, the central market was, you know, a wholesale wet market in the middle of a, 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 a thriving city centre and it was cluttered and it was messy and, you know, it just, from a traffic and sanitation and whatever point of view, it was just too much trouble. And the new market in Selayang was going to be built, the new wholesale market, you're going to move it out of the city centre. You know, that's not where you keep a central market, that's not where you keep this kind of wholesale facility. And the idea was broached that actually perhaps, you know, we could take a page out of the rehabilitation of Covent Garden in London as a sort of a tourist, cultural and art centre. 
to because it was this huge space that could be refurbished and could be rehabilitated and I think um, not just rehabilitated but bringing new life back to it um, and to the area. So the refurbishment of Central Market happened, right? Uh, and I won't go into that because that's really a different story. But after that, um, there was a certain um, sense of, oh, you know, I think from the heritage community and the arts community, a certain sense of achievement. And, you know, there, was, there were people who owned or bought or rented shop houses in KL and started doing some renovations in and around the city center because there was the sense that, you know, the character and the identity of the old city was disappearing in the modern skyscraper and the modern skyline and modern materials. And then it was sort of going to be like the next big city. So where was this character? Where were our, you know, whatever, our values? Where was that? And this was not only happening in KLM, it was happening in Penang and, you know, to a certain extent, a place like Taiping, you know, who said, we're, you know, we're the first this, we're the first that, we're the first the other, and we've got all of these first. So let us celebrate and enjoy Malacca. Yeah? Sometimes it was unconscious. Sometimes it was just from sheer inertia, rather. But... In some cases, it was done purposefully. And the driver very often was um, new commerce, um, tourism, uh, the tourist all in F&B. You know, let's move a, a new um, a restaurant into this. Let's turn it into a hotel. And in the 1980s in KL, there was a certain sense of retaining the facade of a place but gutting the interior and just changing the whole interior. So there are two arguments to this part, you know, what we call facadism. Lah. So you retain the facade, which is the shell. Beautiful, right? When you go in, you have no sense of the history of the place because it's completely changed. Or you go in and the, the sense of history, the styling of it, ha you know, is... Uh, evokes back uh, the memory of that past, but it is modernized, it is contemporary, you get that sense, and so you find that balance between now, the modern, and then what is the history of the place. So I think that it's something that more and more, in, in a sense, I think Malaysians have started to buy into this, um, you know, and we go through waxing and waning line you know on it but but it's 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 you can you can see it right in in the city you know you can see it and mostly you see it through um not through the mega not through the mega buildings not through the monumental buildings because these monumental buildings back to the pango manaraya and the old city you know are very often so large and when they are owned by government, you know, the government of the day or the government of Malaysia or um, big, you know, a big family or whatever, it's a question of how do you, what do you do with them? Um, because, you know, they're so large. What do you do with them?
uh, you can't turn them into a hotel. It doesn't have the infrastructure to allow for that. Uh, you know, what do you expect from a hotel? Uh, you want to make a boutique hotel, five-star boutique hotel, swimming pool, la, you know, this kind of F&B outlet, la, you know, um, certain kinds of retail activity. But maybe the buildings don't lend themselves to it uh, without huge, huge, huge sums of money being invested. And so when you start counting your, your, the amount of money you need to invest, your returns are going to be really, really long term. You may get there, but it will be way down the line. It's not like you're going to find your um, investment, you know, gives you good returns in, you know, two years or three years, five years. Oh, you're really lucky, you know, 10 years, 20 years, you know, that kind of thing. So, so you need to sort of find that um, investor um, and so you say, okay, la, the government of Malaysia should do it, right? Because after all, you are the custodians. For us, we are the taxpayer. We are the rakyat. You know, you should look after, you know, these heritage monuments because they are part of our history and our past. But when you have buildings like this and you don't know what to do with them, you don't know how to reuse them, or nobody wants to go into it because they feel that, uh, let's say, a business or a ministry or whatever, you know, you go into this and you say, it's more trouble than it's worth because it's a monument, it's a gazetted monument. You tell me if I want to uh, change the paint, I have to go to Jabatan Warisan because there's a law that says I cannot do it without permission, you know. If I want to make a doorway between two rooms, that open collapse, you know, make one big room out of two rooms, I have to go to Jabatan Warisan and get permission, you know? That kind of thing is more trouble than it's worth. But very often it's that because we don't know how to tackle it. But there are so many examples around the world which have demonstrated how it can be done. Mm. Yeah, I think you've highlighted, I think, some key elements that are making the issue... A bit more complex, right? I think you've sort of like highlighted. <laughs> Do I? I always make things too complex. Is it? <laughs> no, no, no. No, I think it's good. It's good. It's good because I think we, we can perhaps unpack that, right? I think there is this um, dilemma that is facing a lot of people regarding, like, for example, do you renovate versus do you demolish, right? Because, and you've mentioned the economic cost behind it as much as it's not as romantic. It is the truth that I think sometimes people are taking into factor, right? And also you touch on big monument buildings that are because they're owned by government, technically there is less, I guess, argument about perhaps demolishing them. But I, I think they are stuck in this, uh, like a place where, you know, people don't know whether like um, they can do anything to it. And even if they can't do anything to it, then how are we going to utilize it? Then it ended up being vacant and not being utilized properly, right? So yeah, how do we navigate our way around this? I think the the, the economic aspect of demolishing versus, uh, I guess, renovating is one thing. But for these bigger monuments that are perhaps uh, going through this problem of having to, yeah, having to... Justify like, for example, themselves. <laughs> justify themselves, one thing. And also, like, how, how do we make sure that they're utilized properly you know, and not just be vacant? I think that, that uh, yes, I mean, I think that, that that is not an easy answer, yeah? But I'm going to give you an example of, um, I mean, apart from Central Market, which it was commercial. I mean, you know, it was, it moved from a commercial wholesale market to a, you know, um, a marketplace uh, where it's still keeping a commercial character, but renovated and refurbished and 
to bring in more sort of cultural products as opposed to, you know, fish and vegetables, you know, that kind of thing. Um, uh, servicing, um, in, in the case of what we now see as Central Market, you know, a, a, not just a local population, uh, but an international visitor population as well. So it becomes a destination, right? Um, and it's just not, not just utilitarian. And in a lot of cases, when we're looking at these monumental buildings, um, these large uh, public buildings, and we're not quite sure how to do with, you know, what to do with them, because they probably were offices, like, you know, Sultan Muhammad building was an office. Um, so you want to turn it into a hotel? Sometimes from, you know, an office into a hotel, sometimes it, it is not quite the right fit because you need to do a lot more work. If you are able to find a fit which is sympathetic, so turning a house into a, a boutique hotel, I'm going to take Kakosa Srinagara as an example, for example, yeah? You have a certain character and quality already about the spaces. Um, so when you're turning it into something which is a more sympathetic use or a more comparable, you know, comparable use, um, it's an easier fit, yeah? It's like, it, and, and so, you know, that's one thing. It takes a lot of doing. It takes a lot of um, energy, actually, to come up with that. But because these properties are large and because very often they're in the center of the city, because that's the way the city grew, yeah? Um, you know, it's it's you you get into this argument about well, you know, the cost of land in this area is you know so many thousand dollars a square foot, um, and I can build a you know sixty story tower here. So why should I retain this two story building even if it's monumental? But then you go well, but that's actually where everybody goes, and that's what makes KL distinctive. So if you see a photo, um, you know, taken outside the Sultan Samad building, it places you squarely in Kuala Lumpur. Like if you take a photo of the Twin Towers, it places you squarely in Kuala Lumpur. But if you take a photo of quite a number of sort of more uh, ubiquitous looking, no matter how distinctive towers um, and high rises, um, you know, you could be anywhere. You could be in KL, you could be in Ipoh, you could be in um, you know, you could be in, in Bangkok. Do you know what I mean? It, it's, or you could be in London. I mean, you know, it, it's really only when you have these monumental, uh, recognizable, iconic uh, buildings that it gives you its location. And this location is what gives us our pride of place. And I think we really, really need to sort of understand that. And to understand also that the use, because you, you're asking me, you know, how, how do you and what do you do? Um, how do you use it? I suppose we really have to say, are we looking at making profit now, immediately? And profit meaning, you know, how much money can I turn around and make and put into my bank, yeah? Or are we looking at it from, um, from a different perspective, a more emotional perspective, a historical perspective, uh, um, and can we afford to do that? Because somebody will say, look, I own this little Malay, you know, this little wooden uh, house. And um, it takes a lot of money to maintain it uh, in my kampong. 
So um, I'm going to be moving to the banda because um, I can't live in this kampung house anymore because I'm older and climbing up and down the stairs and carrying water this way. You know, it just really doesn't fit. And you know, I'm too old for it. Um, so somebody comes along and buys it from you, moves it out of its location into their uh, large compound, gentrifies it, and then uses it as a guest house or as a, a wakaf or, a, you know, a place that you can party at, you know, um, and, and uh, or bring people there and give you a sense of this is the history of the place. But you have relocated it and you have lost that connection. It's still around, but you've lost that connection. So it's really a question of how do we keep those connections? And to keep those connections, very often we have to retain the not just the physical presence, but a memory of the activity, which is why I'm talking about the fit. You know, if you turn a, a religious building into an entertainment outlet, it's not exactly a right fit. But if you turn an old cinema into another entertainment outlet, into another type of entertainment outlet, you know, it has a better fit because it keeps the same spirit. It keeps that same sensibility. How can the public play a part in this? And usually, yeah, sometimes when you, when you mention the public, we tend to look at NGOs, you know, as the go-to group to somehow, I guess, help uh, champion these issues. But how can um, normal citizens uh, help in, you know, doing something about this, you know, uh, in, in having a say in, in this kind of you know, conversation. I, yeah, I think that that one of the, um, I mean, you're right. I mean, if, if it's vacant, you know, and there's a group, let's say, you know, a group of, of artists who say, uh, performers who say, actually, we have a group, uh, like a coalition of a network of, you know, smaller performing arts groups. Why can't we, you know, use it, right? as a space for our performances, you know, that will liven it and liven it. And, you know, and then you go, oh, you know, $30,000 a month, $50,000 a month for rental. It like, it, then it becomes prohibitive, you know, that kind of thing. So it is like, how do you weigh that? But how can people, how can the general man on the street participate? In this? I think, A, get to know your city a little bit better. Get to know its history and get to, observe and, and look around you because, um, you know, I've said this to you before, right, Hanif? Um, when it's not there, then you go, oh, something's missing. When it's there and you see it every day, it's just part of your landscape. And this was something that was said to me, uh, was, was, was a comment made to me by a, a young man at that time, he was a student. When they were going to demolish Puri Jail, and um, he, he had a comment and he said, well, you know, Puri jail hadn't been used. Uh, you know, the jail had been moved out. It was used kind of like it, it, it was languishing. It was on this huge piece of land. Uh, you know, it was a huge land bank uh, in the middle of the city center. Um, the uh, government, you know, wanted to redevelop it and turn it into um, yet another um, shopping mall. And with a series of um, condominiums, uh, you know, for for people to live in because they wanted to bring, uh, to provide accommodation uh, for young professionals in the city centre. And in the meantime, you know, there was this piece of land, right? 
And what made Pudu Jail kind of like sit in the memory of this young man um, and, and was the, the, the painting of the wall, which was this um, landscape, uh, which I think those of us who grew up more, you know, in KL will remember from the 1980s onward, you know, for 20, 30 years, it was there, of this idyllic, you know, scene, coconut trees, beach, you know what I mean? It was, and it was this wall, high prison wall, inside you have people incarcerated, outside you have this idyllic scene, it's really quite bizarre. Um, so much so that, you know, this paint, this wall painting uh, got into the Malaysian Guinness Book of Records, it was talked about, lauded, you know, and um, but because the building was not in any use um, and it was more profitable to demolish and to reconstruct um, 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 a set of modern um, whatever buildings, commercial buildings on it, um, the, the, the whole notion of Puri Jail only having value in the value of the land as opposed to it being part of the visual, what this young man said to me was it's part of his visual landscape. Every day he passes it on the monorail, walks past it because he, he used to, you know, um, work in the area, um, sit on the bus and go by it. And you are moving in a, slowly by it, meaning you appreciate it and you see it. I suppose, from a relatively close-up perspective. And he said that part of what, his criticism of why the politicians who at that time said, well, you know, what is it? You know, it's just a jail, you know, and, and it has no heritage value. Um, and this was a comment made um, by more than one politician uh, when they were talking about demolishing the building. Um, and it was reported in the newspapers. Um, was that he said, well, you know, the politicians, they go by, you know, in their cars with the police escorts and they never see it. It's not part of their visual landscape. Whereas it is part of us, the citizenry. It is part of our visual landscape. And when you demolish it, you take that away from us. And then you give us a ubiquitous um, shopping mall, you know, in an area that already has nine shopping malls within that one square mile area. You, you know, that kind of thing. Do we need another shopping mall in that area? Um, as an engineer friend of mine said, like we need a hole in the head because there was already so much that was going on. So could not the building or the property or the series of, of structures somehow um, been retained, refurbished, turned into something? Um, and I think that, Maybe today, if the building was still standing today, maybe there would be more discussion. Uh, maybe there would be more um, citizens speaking out. But when that happened then in the early 2000s, there was not much of a peak. Um, there was more of a protest, I think, from... Um, I, I read about it in blogs. I saw it in, in you know, sort of... At that time, social media was in its infancy, but it was there in uh, being talked about mostly by younger people. But the but the mainstream media did not carry it. 
the story. It was like, okay, lah, so it's going to be there. So we demolish it. It's okay, lah, we're going to build something. You know? So I think it, it, it is a demonstration of different perspectives and maybe different um, periods of life. And so maybe today, uh, because it is quite fashionable to be involved in one way or another in vintage and in heritage, or to have that as part of your identity and your history, um, I think if we have a good understanding, if we have a better grasp of the, uh, not fake news, huh? but actually what's and all, you know, the, the, the actual nature and the, the real, the history of our place and our communities, and we begin to appreciate uh, that, um, because it gives us character, because it's it's an all-rounded, um, you know, we have the good, the bad, the ugly. We have the beautiful, we have the monumental. We also have the small. And it is this perspective of having a balance of these many different facets that give us a point of view, that give us um, a, a, a perspective, because we can see, oh, this big against the small. And we can come to our own conclusions. And I think that that's what's important for everybody, um, whichever community you belong to. To appreciate and to appreciate, I think, even if it's not of your community, to appreciate that somebody else appreciates it, you know? You've been tuning in to I Love KL and this week we caught up with our resident heritage conservation expert Elizabeth Cardosa to reflect on vacant buildings and monuments that are underutilized. That's all we have for this episode of I Love KL. If you miss any part of the show, you can check out the podcast at bfm.my slash ilovekl, our app which you can find via Google Play and the App Store and also Spotify. Don't forget to also follow the station on Twitter at BFM Radio. My name is Sanif Baharudin and you have been tuning in to I Love KL, bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city. Join us again next week only on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.